Well, this is our last Sunday in 1 Thessalonians. We're going to close out the book here today. As obviously Randy just read, that was the, the end of the 1 Thessalonian letter. Um, so we've come through this for several months now, right? And uh, I want to remind you, our, our sermon series sort of theme has been what you hope for shapes what you live for. And uh, I've been really encouraged through my study of, of this book. I've been encouraged by being able to come up here and, and teach it to you. I've heard many of you have been encouraged by it as well. And I pray that today will be equally as encouraging. Today, this passage today, and, and you'll see why in just a few minutes as I, as I begin to share some of my own heart with you, but this has been one of the most encouraging passages for me. Um, so with that said, I want to pray and ask the Lord to, to speak to us this morning. Father, this is, this is what we need to hear because it's from you. And Lord, you know that in this passage, we not only hear from you, but Lord, we hear all about how you work in us. This is about your son's work to make us your own, to make us holy. And so, Father, we need to hear and we need to believe on Jesus this morning and not in ourselves or anything else. But show us, Lord, how if what we hope for shapes what we live for, then our greatest hope is Christ. And may Christ shape our lives. May his gospel shape our lives every day for your glory and for our greatest joy. Because there's no joy apart from Christ. And there's fullness of joy in him. So we need you, Lord. And we need your word to us this morning. So speak to us by your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage, uh, verses 23 and 24, is a benediction that Paul has given to the body here. And it's the benediction that we've been reading every Sunday at the end of, of our sermons we get up here, we sing a song, and, and, and I, I've gotten up here this whole time we've done this book of 1 Thessalonians, and I've read verse 23 and 24. And I want to read it to you again. I'm going to read it to you lots of times this morning, actually. But now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. I said those words have been so sweet to me, especially this week as I've been preparing this message and over the last couple of weeks. And I want to share with you a little bit about why. Uh, just, just kind of let you in on a, sort of a window into my life over the last couple of weeks. About two weeks ago, maybe it was, maybe it was two and a half uh, weeks ago, but uh, a, a West Coast newspaper broke a story about a former pastor of mine. And it was one of those stories that unfortunately we hear all too often. It was moral failure on the part of the pastor. This had occurred back in the 1970s, so nearly 40 years ago. He was a very young man. He was in his very early 20s. And he had become a youth pastor at a church in California. And... Um, and now 40 years later, a couple of women from that group at that time have come forward and said, this man abused us. Uh, he sexually abused them. 
Um, he was married at the time, freshly married, and it was just a, a tragic revelation. And what happened then is that since that time, he's moved into different churches. He founded a church in Arizona. It's become a mega church. It's a very big church. Uh, and when this all came out, they put him on leave. They started an investigation, and they began to ask, has this happened here? Has this happened in any of the churches that he's been a part of? And one of those churches that he'd been a part of was the, the church that I came to know the Lord in. In the mid-1980s, he was the youth pastor of my church. And it came out that some of the girls that I knew from my time in that youth ministry, whether they were students or whether they were uh, on, on like the youth leadership team, they too were coming forward and saying, this happened to us. So this has been a devastating couple of weeks. And um, one of the things that happened was a, a, a web page, a Facebook page, I should say, was created for anyone who had been involved during those years in, in my youth ministry, which was, by the way, a very large group. It was a large church. And it was sort of a support and a, and a forum to like say, hey, has anything happened to any of you? And I'm in that group, and I'm, I'm watching over the last couple of weeks different um, people coming forward and, and sharing. And, and like I said, a few have said, that very thing happened to me. But one of the, probably more so than that, it was just this, a lot of these confessions from people that like, I've walked away from the faith. I'm no longer involved in the church. I have no interest in Christianity. And and, and they're saying that the reason for that was because of what they felt was not, for them, physical abuse or sexual abuse, but spiritual abuse that occurred during those years. And it made me think about what was going on in our church. What, what, was, the, what was the tone of the, the spiritual leadership and the teaching in the church? And I've thought about this before. Because I left that church not too long after high school, and I ended up in a, in a different church, and I, and I realized fairly quickly on that I grew a lot in, the, in my next church, in my understanding of what the gospel is. So I always had this sense that like maybe we didn't really get the gospel before, and it's becoming very clear to me now after listening to all these people saying, this is what I learned there, and this is why I walked away, that in fact, we didn't ever get the gospel or what we, what we got was a, a very truncated understanding of the gospel. The gospel had been reduced to basically an entry point. It was, you know, if any of you are familiar with sort of like the four spiritual laws uh, that came out in that, in that early you know, 60s, 70s period of time. God loves you and offers a wonderful plan for your life. You've sinned. You've fallen short. He sent his son to die for you. Pray this prayer. Receive Jesus and you'll be saved. You'll have eternity with God that was the gospel, and it was sort of like an entry point, but then it was sort of shelved and moved along, and then we just moved into deeper things. That, that was how you become a Christian. Now let's talk about how you are a Christian, and it was, it was obedience. It was rules. It was, we're going to study our Bibles and look at all of the commands, and if you're following the commands, that's how you know you're holy, Now, that's not all bad. In fact, that's good. 
following the commands of God, understanding obedience to the scriptures, that's good, except when it's divorced from the reality that it's only by the power of the gospel, it's the grace of God that produces holiness in me. If it, begun, if, it, if, it, if it gets shifted into you have to produce your own holiness and God will be pleased with you or not pleased with you based on the level of your obedience, that becomes oppressive. Because you can't do it, can you? You can't keep up with the law. It's Old Testament living. And that's what, that's what we were getting. The gospel had been replaced with a moralism. And so we were constantly feeling as though we were being evaluated by how moral we were. And if we failed in that, and of course, most of us did, all of us at times, the condemnation that some were feeling was, you're not, you're not worthy. You're not a believer. God can't be satisfied or pleased with you. And as a result, more so than I realized, many people walked away. I'm telling you this because it's relevant to our study of 1 Thessalonians. Again, our series theme has been what you hope for shapes what you live for. That's been our series theme. Somebody asked me last week, do you think that's the, like the main theme of the book of 1 Thessalonians? And I said, no, I don't actually think that's the main theme. That's kind of been what we've keyed in on. And they said, what do you think is the main theme of the book? Here's what I think it is. I think it's something like this. Be confident, be confident in the security and the certainty of your salvation. Why? Because you need to remember what God has done and what God is doing in you through Christ. Because if you can recall where you were and where you are, what, what, what's been happening in your life, how has Christ transformed you, if you can see the evidence of that, and Paul is saying to the Thessalonian church, there's evidence, guys, see it. Look at, look at who you are. Look what God is doing in you. The, 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 the clear uh, sort of understanding of that, the, 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 the implication of that is only God could do that. Be confident in the security, the validity of your salvation. Because if you look at your life and what is, what's happening, you could never have done this. Only God could do this. Amen. And Paul's closing word to the church, this benediction encapsulates that main idea. And by the way, hope is in that, isn't it? Hope is in that. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He's saying, this is, this is, this is the whole theme of my letter. This is my benediction. God does this. God's faithful. He will complete what he began. Be confident.
He says here, may the God of peace sanctify you completely. We've talked a little bit about this idea of sanctification, but I want to talk about it a little bit more because I think it's so important that we understand what, what is God doing? What does this mean? Holiness is another word for sanctification. Okay? It, it means to be set apart, to be set apart by God as holy, sanctified. And so he's saying here, may the God of, of peace himself make you holy completely. May he sanctify you completely. And there, if, we look at, if we look at the New Testament and we look at an understanding of what he means by sanctification, what does this word entail? We see that there's three ideas involved here with sanctification. There's three, there's three parts that all fit together to make the whole in the definition of that word. All right? And so here's the main ideas here that I want you to grasp this morning. The first one is this. Holiness is positional before it's practiced. It's positional before it's practiced. Holiness is comprehensive, not compartmentalized. It's all-encompassing, not just grabbing some parts of you. Comprehensive, not compartmentalized. And thirdly, holiness involves your participation, not your power. All right? Holiness is positional before it's practiced. It's comprehensive, not compartmentalized. It involves your participation, not your power. God will surely do it. So let's talk about sanctification. Again, these three aspects of sanctification. There's this positional aspect. Systematic theologians like to call this definitive sanctification. It's your position all right? It's sort of like you can look back and say, this is what has happened at a point in time. I am sanctified. The second element then is what we would call an ongoing or experiential sanctification. I can look back and say, I am sanctified, but currently I'm still being made holy. Until ultimately the third element is ultimate sanctification, which the Bible calls our glorification. When we are completed in this life and we we are with God forever in eternity our sanctification that holiness process will be fully complete and so those things can almost sound like there's some contradiction going on there I I'm I already am fully sanctified but I'm still becoming more sanctified and I'm going to be ultimately sanctified those things are all true and yet they all sort of still sit in this idea of it's definitive it's already true What I hope for is not just I hope it happens, it's certain hope. And it shapes the way I live. So let's talk about those three things. This this idea of positional sanctification, this definitive sanctification. And I'll give you a definition from Sinclair Ferguson's book, Christian Spirituality, Five Views of Sanctification. I think he he has a really good uh, encapsulation of this idea of what it means to be positionally sanctified. He says, this refers to the accomplished fact that believers have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. That's Hebrews 10.10. You have been sanctified by the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. This is an irreversible event. It's happened. The, 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 The death and the resurrection of Jesus are fact. They happened 
And therefore, in us, it's an irreversible event where his single offering has perfected for all time all those he came to save. Which means this, it means that our just or our righteous standing before God can neither be lost nor improved upon. You, as a believer in Christ, stand righteous before God. You can't lose it. And I think you know that. I hope you know that, even though we don't often practice that. But here's the thing that we maybe don't grasp. You can't improve upon it because it's already perfected. John Frame defines it this. He says it's, it's a once-for-all event simultaneous with your calling and your regeneration that transfers you from the sphere of sin into the sphere of God's holiness, from the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of God. It, it happened when you became a believer. Definitive sanctification marks us out or separates us to God as his chosen people, as his treasured covenant possession. In this regard, it's very closely linked with the idea of being justified. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a moment that carries with it a process. But it's happened. It frees us from the dominion of slavery, from the dominion of sin, by uniting us with Christ, particularly in his death, resurrection, and his ascension. And in this instance, it means it's a, it's a, it's a radical break from, from the power of sin. So I want you to hear that this morning, believers. This, Christians, is all about your position in Christ. Secured by faith and grace alone. And it's the absolute status of every Christian. The moment you became a believer, the moment you became a believer by faith, this became true of you, full stop. It's not something you achieved. It's not something you earned. It's what Jesus achieved for you and divinely declared you to be. That's what's meant by this idea of positional or definitive sanctification. So holiness is positional before it's practiced. That's not the message of a moralist. Unfortunately, that's not the message that I think I received in my high school years in the church that I was in. What I received was, no, it's practiced in order to be achieved. If you want to be holy, you better do all these things for God to be pleased with you and find you somehow faithful enough. That is wrong thinking. Holiness is positional before it's practiced. That's gospel reality. You say, okay, but what about the practice? Don't we practice our holiness? Don't we grow in this? Aren't we supposed to be obedient people? Is it an event, my sanctification, or is it also a process? And the answer is yes to both. Yes to both. 
And so the second aspect of our sanctification is this ongoing part of it, the ongoing process or the experiential sanctification. Again, from Sinclair Ferguson, he says, ongoing experiential sanctification refers to the work of God in and through men and women, which makes us more like Christ in our day-to-day lives. The Bible declares that as we behold God's glory, we're being transformed into the image of Christ from one degree of glory to another. There is a picture there of growth. By the way, that's 2 Corinthians 3.18. And John Frame again says, we can't think of sanctification, or excuse me, we we, we should think of, we we can think of sanctification as the outworking of the new life given in regeneration. So you're regenerated, you're saved, you're sanctified, but then there's an outflow that comes from that that will change the way you live. It involves the gradual, incremental, and spiritual work of both putting to death what remains of indwelling sin in my life, as well as putting on the likeness of Christ. And so Frame says we're we're sanctified in Christ, and, and therefore so our obedience flows from the cross. So yes, God desires that we grow in our holiness. God desires your obedience. God wants you to demonstrate, to live out what he's laid down in the law. But here's the thing. Remember what I said earlier. Your sanctification can't be added to. So it's not that in growing in Christ and becoming more like Christ that you're adding to your holiness. What you're rather doing is you're realizing more and more of what's already true. You're, you're sort of grabbing onto and becoming what you already have been declared to be. So yes, in our lives, there's going to be a trajectory, Lord willing, where we're growing in Christ's likeness. But it's not because we're more righteous than we were before. It's just that we're realizing and displaying that righteousness better. Because we're understanding how to live And why to live in accordance with that righteousness. But you're not more righteous. You can't be. You've been declared righteous in Christ. So this 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 differs significantly, significantly from moralism, in that we are participating, yes in our holy status by God's grace. You're participating in that, not initiating it. You're not initiating your holy status by your own power. You can't. You're participating in what God has already done in you. So holiness involves your participation, yes, but not your power. Not your power. It's God's work And our response to that work is our participation. Let me show you in Philippians chapter 2 what Paul says to the Philippian church. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now catch what what he's saying here to the church. 
He's saying, you, you are an obedient people. I've seen growth in that area. You're following Jesus. You're keeping the commandments. Not just when I was there. Praise God for that, because then, then I'd, I'd have a reason to believe you guys were just sort of showing on the outside an external holiness. But even when I'm not there, right, when the teacher's away, when the cat's away, the mice will play, you're, you're, you're following Christ. That's good, he's saying. And he's encouraging them here, work out, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But here's the thing. What if we stopped there? What if Paul had just sort of stopped the end of his sentence there? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, and he didn't finish the verse. What would you be in danger of? Moralism, right? Work it out. You keep going. You make this happen. You make yourselves sanctified. You make yourselves more holy, which is going to ultimately mean what happens in the church? Failure. Anybody live perfect obedience this week? No, you fail, and, 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 and as you fail in that, if, if your understanding of your standing before God is based on how you've performed, you're going to be so discouraged, so disheartened, and ultimately, you're going to walk away because that's a burden you cannot bear. It's all law and no gospel. But that's not where the verse stops, is it? He says, look, work out your salvation. Grow. Walk in obedience. But don't think it's because of your power. For it is God who works in you. In other words, you can walk in obedience. You can walk in newness of life because it doesn't depend on you. God is doing this in you. God is faithful to, to sanctify you and to make you more like Christ. You can't fail. And even if you do fail, and it seems as if you failed on the outside, ultimately, you can't fail in your positional standing. That wasn't ever secured by what you did. Jesus died on the cross. He was buried, and he rose again. He conquered sin. You are secure. It's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God, I want to live a life that's pleasing to you. Amen. How do I do that? I'm working in you for my good pleasure. God does this. Look again at how Paul starts this sentence in verse 23. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so God does this. How? And, and how, how do I sort of lay hold to what God is doing? How, how do I know? How does this work? Well, Paul says something really interesting about God in verse 23. He calls him the God of peace. What is, what is meant by peace? You do a word study on peace in the New Testament, it becomes really clear, really quickly, what Paul's saying here. He's saying the gospel accomplishes this because the peace that comes from God runs right through the cross. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since now we've been justified by faith, we have peace. Peace 
with God through our Lord Jesus. How is it that the cross achieves our peace? It's a, it's a reconciling work. We're separated from a holy God by the fact that we're not holy. We're sinners. We're, we're in active rebellion against God. We cannot be in relationship. That's what was lost through sin. Relationship with God was broken. It was severed. And the only way to get back into the presence of a holy God is to be holy. So Jesus comes and he is, lives out the perfect, holy, righteous life because he's fully God But he lives it out as a man. He's fully human. And he's able to not only live the life we couldn't live, but to satisfy God's righteous judgment against our sin by dying the death we deserve to die. He reconciles us to God. He paid your debt. Through him, we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand then. It's the grace of God through Jesus that puts us back in right standing. That's the peace of God. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Paul says similarly to the Colossian church in Colossians 1, For in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. It runs through the cross. The peace of God is the gospel. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. In order that what? That he will present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Not you. Him. Now catch this, because Paul's thought here continues in the next verse. He ends verse 22 saying, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And then he, and then he adds this. He says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. And again, I would ask, what if the verse ended there? God, you sent Jesus. He died for you. He's our peace. He's reconciling you to God. If you remain in the faith... If indeed you can do this. And the moralist, if the, if the verse stopped here, would say, see, here it is. We have to achieve and obey enough in order for this to be applied to us. That's not where the verse ends. Paul explains what he means. How do you indeed stay in the faith? Not shifting from the hope of the gospel. That's how. Not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard and has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. What's the hope of the gospel? Jesus accomplishes our peace. Jesus justifies. Jesus sanctifies. Jesus will present you holy and blameless. Trust Jesus. That's what it means to remain in the faith. It's you remember the gospel. Don't shelve it. Don't park it at the door like this was just the entry point by which I became a believer. No, it's the daily reminder and the daily power that we live in to say, I'm walking in in, in righteousness before God solely by the work of Jesus. 
And yes, I'm, because of that work, I, am, I want to obey. I want to follow him. I've been made new. There's an outflow now of my life, but it's not dependent on my work. Thank God it's because of the grace given to me through the shed blood of Christ on the cross. You remember the gospel. And because you are positionally secure in Christ and therefore are continually being set apart by growth in that ongoing sanctification, you're, you're by God's grace realizing more and more of that reality, we can be sure that this position and this process are comprehensive. Holiness is comprehensive, not compartmentalized. Look again at verse 23. He says this. He says, May, may your whole spirit and body and soul be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we could spend time going through you know, the, the dichotomy or the trichotomy of spirit, mind, body, soul, but let me just make it real simple. He's saying this. It's the whole enchilada. What is, what is, what is the saving power of the gospel reconciled to God in your life? The whole enchilada. Your mind, the way you think, Right? Your soul, your body, what you do, what you believe, your emotion, your intellect, your will, all of that purchased and sanctified by the work of Christ. And so he can say with confidence, God will sanctify you completely. Not just part of you. Oh, there's this one part of me over here that, that uh, I just, God can't redeem this. No, he, he did. How? Because you're unified with Christ. Finally, from, from Ferguson, he says, union with Christ in his death and resurrection is the element of union with which Paul most extensively expounds. If we're united to Christ, then we're united to him at all points of his activity on our behalf. You share in his death. You're baptized into that death. You share in his resurrection. You're resurrected with Christ. In his ascension, you've been raised with him. In his heavenly session, you sit with him in the heavenly places so that your life is hidden in Christ. And we will share in his promised return when Christ, who is our life, appears, we also will appear with him in glory. Romans 6, Colossians 2, Colossians 3. Paul says this sanctification is complete. God's work in us through Christ will be affirmed by our blamelessness on the day of the Lord. He will come back and, and if you are in Christ, if you're united with Christ by faith through that grace, you will be found blameless. And you're thinking, man, I mean, all this stuff in chapters 3 and 4 about all this stuff that you know, we're supposed to be doing so that we, that we will be found blameless. It's positional before it's practiced. And believer, if you're positionally secure in Christ, you will be found blameless blameless because he's going to say I see Jesus I see the covering of my son's blood enter into the joy of your master 
By the way, I, I learned something really cool this week. The, the word for blameless here in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul wrote this in Greek, and the, the Greek word is amemptos. Okay? It means blameless or, or it means without blame. And what I learned this week was that, and this is so cool, archaeologists who have worked in this region in excavating ancient Thessalonica have excavated the ruins of graveyards and cemeteries outside of churches where they've seen Christian symbols on the headstones or the tombstones of those who were buried there and this simple word inscribed across the tombstones. And they said they found it on many, many different tombstones. It just says amemptos, blameless, without blame. And I love that. It's, a, it's as if they were, const- were sort of confidently saying with Paul, yes. When, 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 when Jesus comes back to resurrect this old body of mine, when, when, I, when I come out of that grave to be reunited with him, you know how he's going he's gonna to know where I am? Because this, this little marker right here that says, blameless. So when Paul says that you would be found blameless on the day of the coming of the Lord and his return, they're saying, man, here I am. I'm blameless. They got it. I love that. By the way, if any of you are alive and around when I die, I want that on my tombstone. (laughs) That's the foundation of sanctification. It's rooted in not our humanity and what we achieve, but in what God has done in Christ for us for our union with him. Romans 8.30. I'll, I'll, I'll close with this. Romans 8.30 tells us, those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That's a future promise written in past tense language. You have been called, justified, glorified. You're like, I haven't realized that entirely yet. You're right, but you have. You'll just realize it more and more, and ultimately, because it's already true. Philippians 1, 6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ which for the Thessalonians, Paul simply says it like this. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. I've been praying all week as I've been just sort of bathing in the goodness of this truth and, and, and honestly mourning, lamenting the, this, the current status of my friends from high school and thinking, it's not Jesus that you walked away from. You, you walked away from religion. You walked away from a false gospel. You walked away from this notion that somehow you, you had to achieve it, and, and I understand why you walked away. You, who could live under that burden? 
And to the extent that they're upset with the pastor who spiritually abused them by teaching them that that's what Christianity was about, I share in that sentiment. Galatians 1 I'm surprised at how quickly you've turned to a different gospel. If anyone preaches you a gospel other than this one that you've, re- that you've received, let them be accursed. And so my, my sincere prayer, my sincere prayer for us as a church is that each of you would understand so clearly that moralism is not the gospel. And if you think that way, if you've been tempted to believe that, and I know you will be, I want you to hear this, know this, it didn't come from me. Because it didn't come from this. Don't buy the lie. And the beautiful thing about understanding that, and and when, when we can take moralism and we can throw it to the curb where it deserves to be and understand that, no, our hope is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our obedience flows from that. Our holiness flows from that. Yes, we want those things, but only if they come from God and not ourselves. When when we grab that as a church, when sanctification becomes real to us, we become a very different kind of church. We become a very different kind of Christian, because we we then become a very safe place, don't we? For people to be in process. And that's that's my heart's desire for us as a congregation. That you wouldn't you wouldn't feel like because you know that there's still indwelling sin in you, and you know that there's some things in your life that that haven't yet been realized in that holiness in Christ, that you would somehow think that because of that. I have to hide behind a false facade of "Eh, everything's great for fear that you'd be judged, for fear that that what might happen to you would be what happened to the church that I came out of where it was, well, if you admit that, then we have reason to tell you you're not good enough. God can't love you until you fix yourself. Fix yourself and then come back here. May that never be. It is God who sanctifies you. It is Christ who makes you blameless. So it's okay to be in process because we're confident that it's definitively already happened. And when we become a people who understand that not only is it a safe place for us to be in process, but ultimately we're going to actually be a much holier people. Because the alternative is that we're faking it and we're Pharisees. And I don't have to remind you, Jesus doesn't have a lot of good things to say about Pharisees. But when we're humble and we're thankful, we're basking in the grace of God. A, it drives my desire to follow him because I'm not trying to earn it. I'm just grateful that I have it. And it drives my desire to encourage you. And we become a holier people. So may we hold fast to this great truth.
Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it.